If you enjoy listening to this podcast, we ask you to consider supporting it by making a reoccurring or one-time donation. Visit Mayflower's website at www.mayflowerucc.org and click on the Donate Now button. Donations made to Mayflower's Radio Fund are tax-deductible and go toward keeping this podcast available. Thank you for your support. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City by the Reverend Lori Walkie, Associate Minister at one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church where we believe that religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Lori Walkie. Our scripture lesson this morning comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verses 12 through 17. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do, and in fact will do greater works than these, because I am going to the Father. I will do whatever you ask me, acts in my name. So you love me, you will keep my commandments. I will do whatever you ask me in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If in my name you ask me for anything, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will do, ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to be with you forever. This is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him. You know him because he abides with you and he will be in you. Here ends the reading from our tradition. May God grant to us wisdom and courage for interpretation. So you know, I'm sure, because you've seen the red pyramids, right? Today is Pentecost Sunday! Yes! That's it! And you know the drill. I joke about how there are only three of us really that knew it was Pentecost Sunday before getting to church today, and that even though this is the traditional day on which we celebrate the birthday of the church and the coming of the Holy Spirit, we don't serve cake and punch, none of us are rushing home to pull the Pentecost ham out of the oven, no one is organizing an egg hunt. Traditionally, we read from the book of Acts on Pentecost Sunday, the story that includes the rush of a violent wind, divided tongues as a fire floating above the heads of the faithful, and the text says the Holy Spirit filled them and they began to speak in other languages. Not today. Today we're reading from the book of John, where we find a story that is a bit more subdued, although it is just as radical, the promise of the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to be with you forever. This is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him because he abides with you and he will be in you. What we can assume given this text is that the promise of presence, the promise of the presence of truth is an indication 
of the general sense that those things were absent or would be upon Jesus' death. This is usually how it works. We say, don't worry, be happy, precisely because people are worried and are not happy. Uh, Jesus says, peace be with you, because the disciples had no peace. Or here, the spirit of truth will be given to you. Well, because the truth is hard to come by. When I first read the text in preparing for today, I chuckled at this idea. I mean, please, boys. Buck up, disciples. If you think you are concerned about the absence of truth in your day and age, well, <laughs> welcome to 2019, where the president regularly denies speech and deed that have been video and audio recorded. But to be fair to the disciples, there was a persistent, life-choking lie being spread far and wide in their time. The lie was so pernicious that it can be argued that it actually produced the Jesus movement. In his 1946 essay, Politics in the English Language, George Orwell wrote, political language is designed to make lies sound truthful and murder respectable and to give an appearance of solidity to pure wind. The Romans knew this long before George Orwell. The year the Romans came, they brought with them a mantra and motto, peace through victory, which sounds nice. I mean, it sounds nice, right? It's clear. Who doesn't want peace? Who gets tired of winning? Not liking peace through victory seems counterproductive. In his book, God and Empire, scholar Dominic Crossan asks, why did Jesus happen when he happened? Why then? Why there? And then gives an overview of the geographical and historical matrix in which Jesus lived his life, using the term matrix deliberately instead of background or context. For if you are having a studio portrait taken, and the photographer asks you to choose a computer-generated snow, forest, meadow, beach, or jungle scene, that's the background. The scene is there, but there is no interaction with you. you. You won't be cold in the snow or warm on the beach, but a matrix, on the other hand, is interactive and reciprocal. It changes you, and you change it. Southern racism was matrix, for example, not just background for the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. Here then is the geographical and historical matrix for Jesus. First, in the generation of Herod the Great during the 30 or so years before Jesus' birth, and then in the generation of Herod Antipas during the 30 or so years after Jesus' life, during Jesus' life, and then immediately after. And those two Herods, they form the matrix, the political matrix of Jesus' life, which is to say that in Nazareth, around the time Jesus was born, men, women, and children who did not hide successfully from the Romans after the Jewish uprising in 4 BCE would have been respectively, killed, raped, and enslaved. Those who survived would have lost everything. 
Crossan speculates that the major stories Jesus would have heard while growing up in Nazareth would have been about the year the Romans came. And the impact on him was profound. It shaped the rest of his life. Jesus experienced, as so many others did, the lie behind the motto, peace through victory. And the lie was this, the peace through victory is achieved by violence so that peace is never really peace, only a lull in the violence. And after each lull, the violence required for the next victory escalates. So it was that Jesus spent his entire life pushing back against this lie, this lie that peace can come through victory. In the Gospel of John, in the text we read this morning, which comes just before Jesus marched to the cross, Jesus reminds the disciples of two things. First, that those who love him will not go and believe likewise, but go and do likewise. Jesus actually expects them to do more than he did. Very truly, I tell you, he said, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do, and in fact, will do greater works than these. Jesus has pretty high expectations. The second emphasis is this. The faithful should be committed to truth with a capital T. The spirit of truth that abides with us and within us is a mark of the church. In a world that does not know truth, that hides truth, that obscures truth, the church is to offer a counter-cultural alternative. To be in the world is to be socially and politically engaged, to work for the kingdom here and now, while recognizing, and that's recognizing that we are in the world. But we are not of the world, because to be of the world is to accept its terms, its currencies, its objectives and agendas as legitimate, and to allow that to dictate our own values, our own way of living. And that is what Jesus pushes against. We are to be truth tellers, to push back against lies. For the disciples and the early church, this meant offering an alternative to peace through justice by saying, no, no, sorry, the, the alternative through peace through victory by saying that peace really comes through justice. Peace through justice, not a continual cycle of violence that traps us all. And if the faithful needed the spirit of truth then, well, we certainly need it now. And the problem, of course, is that truth can be hard to discern. Marilyn McIntyre reminds us that truth is elusive. Truth avoids institutional control. Truth tugs at conventional syntax. Truth hovers at the edge of the visual field. Truth is relational. Truth lives in the library and in the subway. Truth is not two-sided, it's many-sided. 
Truth burrows in the body. Truth flickers. Truth comes on little cat's feet and back down back alleys. Truth doesn't always test well. Truth invites you back for another look. Another look. So it is that here in church, we talk about hard things, complicated things, complex things. We talk about things that we have even bought into, lies that we have bought into, lies that we continue to live out. We wrestle with many of these things and we do that work together because the church in it is the spirit of truth. We wrestle, for instance, with our own culpability in perpetuating an unjust immigration system. Over the last year, we have seen shocking headlines about the ACLU uncovering widespread sexual, physical, and psychological abuse of immigrant children by Customs and Border Patrol. And it is every bit as awful as the headlines suggest. But one thing the headlines consistently omitted is that all of the documented abuse in that batch over the last year that we've been hearing about, all of that occurred between 2009 and 2014 under a different president. And it is not equivocation or mitigation of ongoing atrocities to recognize that. It is an acknowledgement of truth that nativism, nationalism, and xenophobia have been and are bipartisan evils in this country and that our immigration enforcement policies were inhumane long before now. It is why today the headlines read, on the border, police chase smugglers, the migrant body count is getting higher. Or this one, thousands of immigrant children said they were sexually abused in US detention center report says. Those headlines exist because we said nothing before 2016. And now things are worse than they were. This is the truth. And we must tell the truth about our own negligence and complicity so that we can get to the heart of the matter. And as part of the long-standing tradition of nonviolent resistance, the church should be at the front, should be front and center in truth-telling about guns in America. We are told that more guns will make us safer, but that is a lie. The truth is that this country has made an idol out of guns and it is killing our children. Access to a gun triples the risk of death by suicide, doubles the risk of death by homicide, and in situations of domestic violence, makes it five times more likely that a woman will be killed. This is truth. We have the numbers. Now we need to do something. And we must tell the truth even when the truth is hidden behind headlines that phrase news by using the government exonerative tense. And it sounds like this. 
Dozens of Palestinians have died in protests as the U.S. prepares to open its Jerusalem assembly, uh, embassy. Dozens of Palestinians have died in protests as the U.S. prepares to open its Jerusalem embassy. Palestinians have died. How? The passive voice in this headline hides the one performing the action. Israel is assigned no responsibility for killing protesters. The United States is assigned no responsibility for creating conditions under which people die. As Mustafa Bayoumi observed, it's almost, according to this headline, as if bullets just hang in the air waiting for Palestinians to walk deliberately into them. We must tell the truth that what's happening in Gaza isn't working, that people are killing each other, and it will only lead to more killing if we continue on this path. And again, that's where the church comes in. In this place, we work on two things telling the truth and not tolerating lies. This is why we gather on Sunday mornings for church school and then worship on Wednesdays for webs or Mondays for men's group or Tuesdays for guild or Martha Circle and all of the other times we gather to ferret out the white hot center of the gospel. This is why this pulpit ignores the advice to stay away from race or to be careful with sexism or to avoid speaking about gun violence, immigration, civil rights, the military industrial complex, or reproductive choice. For if we do not speak about hard things at church, where will our children turn to help find help distinguishing truth from lies? Where will we ourselves find partners in discerning truth from lies? When Jesus promised the spirit of truth, it was because he knew how important it would be for purposes of identification. Who are followers of the way? They are the truth tellers. It set the disciples apart and it will set us apart. And of course, it wasn't simply rhetoric that Jesus offered about truth-telling, although that's important too, says the preacher. But it's not just rhetoric. It's action that goes along with our words. And y'all remember, of course, the kind of resistance Jesus organized. Turn the other cheek so that the oppressor would be forced to treat the oppressed as an equal. Go the extra mile to show the Roman soldier whose pack you're carrying that they have a choice, they can end this too. Give your coat and your cloak, or in other words, strip naked, in order to embarrass the rich who would take the last stitch of clothes from the poor if we let them. These ways of resistance were unexpected, which is a nice way of saying odd, odd. Jesus was awed. This nonviolent resistance was awed because the accepted wisdom of the day was peace through victory. But Jesus was awed 
because he was unwilling to repeat that lie, unwilling to continue perpetuating that lie, awed in refusing to meet violence with violence, the strategy that had been used year after year, century after century, and instead, Jesus insisted on the truth, which is that peace comes through justice. Peace comes when the hungry are fed and the lowly are lifted up. All of these Jesus strategies were designed to turn the tables, to tell the truth about the violence of economic injustice, imperial rule, and oppression, and to make those things look as silly and deadly and unnecessary as they really are. Silly because it doesn't take much to see that such a system is like the emperor who has no clothes. Deadly because organizing the world in such a way actually kills people. And unnecessary because there really is another way. And now it is our turn to carry on that tradition of, uh, of organized nonviolent resistance and this will definitely not result in deep and abiding relationship with institutions of power. Mayflower's work for economic justice in pushing back against utility rate hikes by providing testimony to what higher electric bills mean for working families who are already struggling to pay bills, this is an odd strategy. It is an odd strategy because we have to admit that the church can't cover the difference between the bill and someone's paycheck. We can't cover it all, and we admit it. And some would say this makes us weak, but it doesn't make us weak. It makes us truth-tellers. For in asking the OG&E Energy Corporation to be a good neighbor is to choose a strategy that pulls them into relationship with the people they are supposed to be serving. It is to remind them that profit is not the primary obligation. People are the primary obligation. It is the same in our strategy with the Department of Homeland Security. We don't cast them as the enemy, instead, we invite them to participate. We ask for their advice on where we should hold our vigils so that, well, we make them complicit in challenging their own policies. They know us on a first name basis. This might seem odd, for most people try to stay off government watch lists. But not us. We have some truth to tell. So, to borrow a line from Flannery O'Connor, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you odd. Perhaps this is the most faithful way we can celebrate Pentecost, to tell the truth. And if that's the case, Here's to being odd. Here's to being the church. Amen. You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Lori Walkie, Associate Minister 
at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services are every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. with adult education classes at 10 a.m. Mayflower also has a full church school for children of all ages available during the 11 a.m. service. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street, one block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.